Oh, good morning, church. Yeah, you're awake. That's good. I'm excited to be in Exodus 2 with you all this morning. Um, a few shout-outs as we start off this morning. Let me see if I can get all of these right. Shout-out to Alex and to Nick and to Ash and to Brandon. That covers Michigan, California, Australia, and Oklahoma. It's kind of cool, the, the reach that is out there and the number of people who are connected this morning. Um, shout out to Tommy and the Bloomington campus. Uh, love you guys. Shout out to, I just want to give this general shout out because you guys, each of you deserve a trophy right now. Um, shout out to the teachers and students who are enduring hybrid learning slash e-learning slash home learning slash homeschooling. Uh, man, if we had a trophy for each of you this morning, I would give it happily because I think you've earned it. Um, yeah, no kidding. Um, I, so my story is, um, I work with a ministry called Encounter. My wife and I uh, have been a part of Eastview for quite a few years now. We've been members. But all my professional life, 23 years, I've worked with college students, 18 to 23-year-olds specifically. And a lot of people will ask me sometimes, they'll say, hey, what is it? What's a, what's a typical question that you get from college students? I don't even have to think about that answer. All right, top three things people show up in my office asking me questions about on any given day. You ready? Number one, none of these are going to be a surprise to you, by the way. You could probably tell me what they are. Number one, dating advice. Okay? And this goes something along the lines of this. Um, I, I like this girl, uh, but I really, I'm trying to follow Jesus. I don't know what a, a Jesus relationship looks like. I don't know what a godly relationship looks like. I've never seen this in my family. I don't understand how one goes about this. How do you do this? That's number one. The second one, roommate issues. That's the second one people hit me up with. Hey, my roommates have some serious problems with me right now. It's like, okay, well, when's the last time you paid rent? Three months ago. <laughs> you ever do your dishes? No. It's like, well, I'm probably on the side of your roommates right now at this point in the conversation, right? The third one, what's God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? What should I do for a job? Who should I marry? Where should I live? Like, these are the questions that 18 to 23-year-olds, specifically about the age of 20. You know, I've raised, I have six kids, ages, we go from first grade all the way to college in that spread, and so I've raised teens. And I gotta tell you, a 16-year-old, it's like, you can't tell me what to do with my life. But then suddenly we all hit this turn at age 20 where we're like, somebody please tell me what to do with my life. Somebody, anybody, like I'll take advice from anybody at this point. And can I tell you this morning, I'm not sure we ever leave that stage. The question changes. I mean, it, it's, it's not quite the same. If you're, if you're in your 60s in this room, you're not asking the same question, but it has the same flavor to it. And the question is, is what I'm doing, does it matter? Is what I'm investing in, is what I'm pouring my life into, I want to know that I'm part of something that's grander than me. That's the, the, the question that's being birthed from our students and their search for identity is a good one at its heart because it's not just, I want to know what to do, but I want to invest myself into something that matters. I want my story to matter. I hope that resonates with you. And this morning, um, we're in a series called The Fam, and I just want to recognize on the front end of this sermon this morning that there, there might be a twinge of pain for some of you just in that statement, the fam, because there are broken homes represented in this room, there's divorce and there's death that's represented in this room when we talk about family. But even if you come from a family that's great, that's unbroken, there's still pain 
and there are still wounds. So if you hear this theme, either with adoption specifically or with just family in general, if you hear that theme and you think, oh man, this, I don't know. I don't know if I want to hear the rest of this. Can I just tell you that this morning might be especially for you? Because Moses' life carries some significant brokenness and pain. He was not exempt. You are not exempt. I am not exempt from that pain. But the question is, does that pain matter? Does it have meaning? Is God taking it somewhere? Is he using it? That's at the heart of our text this morning. Now, I know in the Protestant world we don't do this a lot, but I have a call and response for you this morning. Do you know what that is? Good, okay. Here's what this looks like. When I say the phrase, our God can redeem all things, I'm going to expect a response from you this morning. So your amen in that moment sounds like this. You are going to say all things. You're going to reaffirm that phrase in that moment because that's where our text takes us. So I will say, our God can redeem all things. All things. That's right. One more time. Our God can redeem all things. All things. That's right. Okay. Now, one of the reasons I think that we see adoption over and over again in Scripture as near and dear to the heart of God. I mean, you heard the passage that Tyler quoted in communion, Psalm 68, 5, that he's a father to the fatherless. Oh, that theme continues all throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy 10, 18 reaffirms it. It says he defends the cause of the fatherless. It says it through the prophet Isaiah, I'll draw my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. That's Isaiah 43, 6. Psalm 91, 4 compares God to a mama bird. Said God's like a mama bird that draws her children under her wings. And it says we are in his refuge under his wings. Can you picture that? A Canadian goose like being like, you want to come at me? Like you want to come at my children? Then you come at me first. And you're not going to pick that fight. Right? That's, that's the picture that we have of God. And I think that's part of the fact that we see pain and brokenness as a part of almost every adoption story. My wife and I have not adopted, but we have many, we're connected to many people who have internationally and domestic. And brokenness is a part of those adoption stories, and so is redemption. But maybe that's why it's so close to our Father's heart, because he loves to work and he loves to redeem. In fact, our God can redeem all things. Oh, I caught you by surprise that time. Don't forget. Okay, so before I get to, to Exodus 2, I have to remind you where we were in Exodus 1 because there was a lot that was happening there. So let me give you three things just to bring you into the story. Or maybe if you're joining us for the first time today, this just brings you up to speed. So first of all, the political landscape. Pharaoh's the king. He's in charge, and he realizes that the Hebrew people are becoming too populous. They're growing too fast. They have too much influence, and so they're enslaved. That doesn't help. That doesn't solve the problem. They're still continuing to grow in their influence. And so he tells the midwives, he puts out an edict that says, you are to kill every newborn male that is a Hebrew. If, if you deliver the baby and it's a male, he's gone. You think our political landscape is tense. I want you to think about what it was like living under this pharaoh. Now, here's the thing. That didn't work. The midwives didn't follow through on it. And so Pharaoh expands the edict to every Egyptian citizen. Every Egyptian citizen was required to participate in the mass genocide of the Hebrew people. Process that for just a second. 
That means that if you, as an average Egyptian citizen, didn't turn in this family or didn't do that yourself, you might risk your own children. You might risk your own imprisonment or death. So politically, the edict that's put out there when Moses is born is that every Egyptian citizen has the mandate to make sure any Hebrew males are dead. That's number one. Number two, the thing I want you to remember from last week of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, Jochebed. This is Moses' mom. This puts her in an impossible situation because she's pregnant. And if it's a boy, you know what's coming. So what does she do? Probably hides her pregnancy. And certainly, once she finds out that Moses is a boy, she hides him. But how long can you hide a, a screaming baby, right? She does it for three months. Can you imagine what that was like as a mom for three months? Any Egyptian citizen figures out that Moses is alive, he's got a death sentence on his head. I, I struggled with that this week, how stressful that must have been for her to hide him, and that eventually leads her to a place where she doesn't have any other choice. She waterproofs a basket, a little ark, we're told, and she puts him in it, and she puts him in the Nile in an act of complete desperation. The only thing she can do is pray and let him go and be like, God, I know if I hold on to him, he's going to be dead, and so this is better than that. So that's part two I need to bring you up to speed in. We have the edict we have Jochebed's unbelievably difficult decision, and we have a 10-year-old, a meddler. Miriam, Moses' sister, Jochebed might have let that basket go, but Miriam did not. And I have a seven-year-old daughter right now, so I understand exactly what's going on here, okay? A seven -year my seven-year-old, I put a baby anywhere, and she's on it, holding it, cradling it, touching it. She can't stand to be away from it. Okay? So Miriam's brother is placed in a basket, and she, Jochebed lets it go, but Miriam does not. She is tracking this thing like a bloodhound down the Nile. She's hiding in the reeds. She's following it along. So all three of those things are happening in real time when we pick up in Exodus 2, verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. Okay, let me interrupt the text. You don't have indoor plumbing, you've got to either bring the princess to the river or the river to the princess. So they bring the princess to the river. While her young children walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, Moses. And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him. And she said, this is one of the Hebrews' children, and then his sister, now let me clarify some of the pronouns so we don't get lost. Then his sister, this is Moses' sister, Miriam, said to Pharaoh's daughter. So Miriam pops out of the reeds. She's been following Moses all along. Miriam pops out of the reeds and says, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Moses' mom, Jochebed, who had recently just released him to his certain death with a prayer, okay? Goes and gets Jochebed, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman, Jochebed, took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. What just happened? 
<laughs> Jochebed is in this impossible situation. She releases the baby into the water with a prayer and nothing else, because at that point, the death sentence on Moses was probably going to happen. And what happens? She gets her baby back with a paycheck. She's hired on the spot to become the nurse for her own son in that moment, which probably lasts four or five or six years with this culture at this time. And then he becomes a part of the royal family. So this child who has a death sentence on his head from the day that he's born is released into the river, is somehow returned back to his mom and ends up with a Harvard education in the royal household. And his mom gets a paycheck and probably royal protection along with it in those years. Unbelievable. Our God can redeem all things. All things. That's right, he can. Plot twist at the end of there. Now, did you notice at the end in verse 10, it says that, uh, that he, he was named Moses because it means drawn out of the water. The Hebrew there word is mashah, and that's what it means to draw out. Psalm 18, 16, when David says, he sent, meaning God from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. When David says that, he's using, the same, he's using Moses' name, that Hebrew verb, mashah, drew me out of the water. Now, for you language geeks in the room, the next 30 seconds is for you, okay? The rest of you can just completely tune me out. Uh, some scholars speculate that there is Egyptian meaning to Moses' name as well, because in that period, they used the letters M-S-E-S, -E Moses, to mean child of or son of whatever came before it. So Ramses, R-A-M-S-E-S, -E means child of Ra. And so it's possible, this is a little bit of speculation, but some scholars believe in Egyptian, Moses means son of no one because there's nothing that comes before it in his name. Pretty fascinating that we have this dual meaning, meaning for a child who's plucked out of the river who means child of no one. But it's not speculation what we have in the Hebrew, because in the Hebrew, in verse 10, we definitely see that he is plucked and drawn from the water. And I find that fascinating because water becomes a representation of almost every stage of Moses' life. All these different turning points that we have from Moses as a baby and young Moses and old Moses. Water is like this, this beautiful symmetry that goes throughout Moses' life. Think about it with me for just a second. Young Moses, I'm sorry, baby Moses, in a basket, plucked from the water, rescued, has a death sentence on his head, but somehow he's adopted. Somehow the course of his story is changed from here. What do we see with young Moses? If you don't know the story, let me fill it in. He is raised conflicted. The Hebrews probably wouldn't accept him as a Hebrew. He's raised in the royal Egyptian household. The Egyptians probably didn't accept him as an Egyptian. He looks Hebrew. And so in the middle of Moses' life as a young man, he sees conflict between an Egyptian and a Hebrew. The Egyptian is picking on the Hebrew, and he murders the Egyptian. And then, and then he knows he's in serious trouble. So he runs. He runs to the desert in Midian. And in this spot in his life, where does he find himself? Drawing water at a well. And through a series of events that I don't have time to get into today, that's, a, that's another sermon for another day, he rescues these shepherds, these, these seven daughters who were there, and ends up meeting Zipporah, his wife, and his father-in-law, and all of this time he spends in Midian. This is young Moses. 
And then he sees a burning bush, right? Exodus 3 and 4. And we see him step into what I would call old Moses. The staff and the flowing robes, probably. Right? Or at least the Hollywood version of him. This is the Moses who confronts Pharaoh. This is the Moses with his back to the Red Sea who turns around and God parts the waters in front of him and he leads two million people across into the desert. This is the Moses who led people in the desert, who God spoke to on Mount Sinai, who brought down the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, whose face was glowing so much from his being in the presence of God that it freaked the people out so badly that they said, could you hide your face? It's glowing too much. It scares us. One of my, this is not a part of the sermon, one of my favorite dad moments, um, I've said this before, of old Moses is he comes down, remember, with the Ten Commandments, and they're worshiping the golden calf, and he's so infuriated in that moment that they would be doing that, that he breaks the, the tablets, number one, and then he makes the people grind the golden calf to powder and drink it. I think that's Exodus 32. Have you ever caught that part of the story? Such a dad move. You want to worship the golden calf? Eat it. Eat it. He made them eat it. Baby Moses, young Moses, old Moses. And you guys, I see such beautiful symmetry in drawn out of the water. The water is what rescued Moses here. I see him meeting Zipporah at a well and rescuing these shepherds, and water becomes a representation of young Moses. We see him with his back to the Red Sea and God parting it. We see him splitting the rock and water coming out of it. We see that being an act of disobedience a second time, and that means he can't enter the promised land. Even at the end of Moses' life, he's one river away from seeing the promised land. There's water everywhere. Symmetry. There's symmetry in his story. Oh, but can I tell you that the only reason that there's symmetry in his story, from my opinion, is because I can look at his story 3,500 years later like this. I can look at all of it. I, you and I this morning have a God-like perspective on Moses' life because I can see what God was doing at the beginning. I can see what God was doing in the middle. I can see what God was doing in the end. And I've been so humbled all week by seeing the ark of God that moves over it. Let me show it to you a different way. If you're watching, see if I can use this thing correctly. If you are watching any episode of any kind of television show that probably isn't reality TV, okay, you've got all these different episodes that sit like this, one after another after another. So if you're watching The Office, each individual episode has its own little story, right? But then the writers of that are telling a larger story that goes above and beyond it, like this that sits over it, this arc that they are wanting to describe. I, I didn't mean to make a football play, but that's kind of what I created there. Um, yeah, I'll let that go. But here's the thing with this. Whether we're talking about The Office, or whether we're talking about Downton Abbey, or whether we're talking about The Avengers, okay, Iron Man, Thor, each of these movies that sit there, but they're telling the story of the Infinity Stones that goes over it. 
Or if we're talking about this in terms of Moses' life, we have his story in the basket, his adoption into the royal family. We have all these different stories that we see in Moses' life. But the beautiful thing that you and I can look at 3,500 years later is we can see what God was doing in the larger ark that sat over it. Genesis 15, 500 years before Moses. God said this was going to happen. He said his people would be enslaved for 400 years. He was specific even about the timeline. He said that he would rescue them. None of this came as a surprise to God. We serve a God who can redeem all things. That's right. And each piece of this was impossible. Do you understand Jochebed's prayer? Is she released him? She didn't know how the prayer was going to be answered. I don't even think she had any ideas. There was just a hope and a prayer. Mike preached on it weeks and weeks ago. The Red Sea, we're all the way down here in Moses' life now, standing against the shores of impossible is what he called it. Absolutely impossible. After Moses had murdered a man and ran and fled out in the desert, do you think he had any idea this larger arc that God was telling in his story? He didn't. I promise that he didn't in that moment. Here's the question. Who do you think is the protagonist of Moses' story? Who's the hero? Moses? You guys, not a chance. Not a chance. Who saved Moses from the river, from the death sentence? Who invited Moses into this story with the burning bush? Who told Moses he would go before him? Who was the power behind the plagues? Who split the Red Sea? Who wiped out Pharaoh's army? Who provided food for Israel in the desert? Who gave the law? Do you think that was Moses who spoke from the mountain? Or Moses who prophesied 500 years before even Moses lived in Genesis 15 that this would happen? If you think the hero of this story is Moses, you've misunderstood Moses' story. And likewise, if you think the hero of your story is you, then you have misunderstood your story. You are not the center of even your own story. Can you put yourself here? Can you see the larger arc that God might be beginning to move? Probably not yet. Probably not yet because you're in the midst of the chaos. You're in the midst of the storm where you don't have the 3,500-year perspective to understand how our God can redeem all things. All things. Mm. That's right, keep going back. The call and response and response and response. Romans 8.28 gives us a beautiful promise. Um, and that promise goes like this. That God can work all things for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. Now, you have heard the unconditional promise in that already because you've been echoing it back to me all morning. That God can work all things. That's right. There are no conditions put on that. And you say, oh, well, you mean all things that God does in my life. No, I'm telling you, literally everything that you have done, good or bad, I'm talking about things that have been done to you. I have seen in this congregation God use cancer for his glory. I have seen in this congregation God use abuse and redeem it and turn it toward his glory in a way that I would have never wished on that person or hoped for that person. 
But God says, you know what? I can take even that thing that you ran away from me from and did. I can take that and I can turn it and I can bend it. That is an unconditional promise. There is nothing God cannot use. Every last ounce of your experience, he can take and he can use it for kingdom purposes. But there is a condition in the verse. Everything is unconditional. I mean, the, the idea that he can take all things and use them is unconditional. But here's the thing that is conditional. It is for those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. If you do not love the Lord and you are not called according to his purposes, if you want to hold on to your story, if you want to make each element of your story about you, then that promise isn't for you. The Romans 8.28 promise says, if you are willing to lay your life on the altar and say, God, make my messes matter. All the chaos that bubbles around me, make it count for something. Even the stuff that has been evil, I submit to you and I'm asking you to redeem it somehow in your grander story. When we do that, my friends, my God, he can redeem all things, all things, all things. Dawson Trotman is a, a young man who was born in 1908, I believe, early 1900s. And uh, I, I read his book a long time ago, and I related to it so much just because God had given him a vision for campus ministry. He wanted to work with college students. His close friends called him Dawes. That was his nickname. And it's so interesting reading about Dawes because his life did not turn out the way he felt this calling from the Lord as a young man. And as he began to walk forward, and it was just chaos. He and his wife were trying to do ministry. They, could, they couldn't find college students to reach. It just seemed like every door they walked through, they felt this calling, but all the doors were closed, one after another, after another, after another. And it's like, okay, God, what are you doing? The only, like, there were two or three people that were around who were men in the Navy. And so after a while, he and his wife said, maybe this is who God is calling us to. So they started ministering to them. And you know what happened? Their Navy ministry grew. So they said, okay, God, okay, God. And they just kept being obedient with the next step in front of them. And more and more Navy personnel are pouring in. And they, they don't have the money to do this. They don't have the, the house to do this. And day after day, God just keeps providing for them until finally Dawes prays a prayer. And he says, all right, God, if it's Navy ministry I'm doing, then it's Navy ministry I'm doing. So here's what I'm gonna pray for. I want to have a man of God someone who loves you like crazy on every boat in the United States Navy. God, I'm going to work for that. If that's what you're calling me to, that's what we'll do as a family. And they sacrificed and they gave year after year after year. And I'm reading the book like, God, what are you doing? I don't get it. Why These, these people have their lives given to you. I don't understand why this is so difficult. And you know what happened? It caught me by surprise. I put the book down. I was reading the book and I was like, oh. December 7th, 1941 happened. I lost track of where I was in, in U.S. history while I was reading. Pearl Harbor happened. And suddenly, you guys, I had God's perspective on what he had been doing in Dawson Trotman's life the entire time. Because God knew in 10 years that the place that he would need people who knew how to love on people and pray with people and talk about the afterlife and be able to comfort and counsel families of over 2,500 people who were killed in a day, 
And Dawson Trotman worked toward that goal, completely ignorant of what God's larger arc was in that story, you guys. But God knew what he was doing. What did Dawes need to do in that moment? Honestly, you guys, he needed to trust. Being caught in the chaos means that we often can't see the arc, and I want to. I think sometimes the college students that walk into my office and say, tell me God's will for, their, for my life, they want to know the arc. And sadly, I can't answer that question, but I can say, you know what I can tell you? Is that if you are faithful in the next step, even though it seems like it's chaos, even though it seems like you're living in a place where there's this fog in front of you and you can't see very far, even in all of that, our God can redeem all things. There was a, uh, a young girl, a college-age girl, when I was fairly new in ministry. Um, our, uh, we sent a group to work with a group in Chicago called Japuza for a week. And at the time, Japuza specifically ministered to, they were, they were reaching out, doing a lot of work with poverty, doing a lot of work with the elderly, doing a lot of work with the homeless. So we sent a crew of college students up there just to do physical labor for a week. They're doing blight removal, and they're, doing, uh, they're, they're cleaning apartments, and just doing that kind of stuff to help uh, the, the cause for what Japuza was doing. And so here's the thing. After the trip happened, a couple days later, this girl came to me, and she said, hey, uh, kind of somber, I need to talk to you about something that happened on the trip. And I was like, oh, no. Like, my brain didn't automatically go to praise Jesus. This is a, this is a, a wonderful answer to prayer that's coming my direction. She sat down, and she said, I didn't tell anybody else this on the trip because I just didn't know how to process it in real time. She said, uh, I grew up in, in urban Chicago. And she said, there was a season of life uh, for a couple years, actually, where my mom and I were homeless. And, um, and she said, and when we took this trip, I was so nervous because we were going to some of the same areas where I lived. And she said, and we ended up cleaning the apartment that my mom and I lived in when we were in our darkest spot. She said, the people of Japuza saw that we, you know, we, we somehow, they, there was a connection made there. They let us live in that apartment for three or four months while my mom tried to get back on her feet. And she said, I was so overwhelmed to, that God would allow me to serve in this exact same place where I was served as a child. She said, I was just too overwhelmed to even talk about it with anybody on the trip but I needed to talk with somebody about it, and so I'm coming to you. You could have just knocked me over with a pin, but why would I be surprised? Why would I be surprised that God would work on that level where we have this ark that goes over our story, just like there's this ark that goes over Moses' story? We have that Romans promise that our God is working, and he is redeeming, and that he can do what he wants. He is the hero of my story and the hero of your story. You guys, Moses, his adoption teaches us that we have an invitation into a new family. It's a promise from God that comes straight to us. 2 Corinthians 6, 18, I will be a father to you. You'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. John 1, 12, that he gives us the right to become children of God. Galatians 4, 5 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so we might receive adoption. You and me. And Romans 8, 15 through 17 goes one step further and says, hey, if we are his children, then we are also heirs. Just like Moses is adopted 
into the royal family. So are we. We're heirs with Christ, Paul said. So if God's writing a story that's bigger than yours, if he's writing a story that's bigger than yours, and if he has adopted you, and if, as Romans 8 also tells us, that God is for us, and who in the world can be against us, if all those things are true, then what stands, what could possibly stand in our way from a God who loves us, who defends us, who's writing a story bigger than ours? I know that we love to quote Jeremiah 29. You know that verse? Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. That's like the Hobby Lobby verse, right? <laughs> I, I've got some news for you. There's a spoiler alert in here. I, of course, don't disagree with the verse, but I will tell you this, God's plans and his hope and his future rarely look like the one that you have planned for yourself, rarely. He is telling a larger story. And if you misread Jeremiah 29, it sounds like you are inviting God to join your story, but that's not the invitation. <laughs> the invitation is for you to join his, to merge your story into the larger story and say, God, make the mess matter and make the chaos count, to quote some song lyrics Maybe that's why toward the end of Romans 8, Paul says this about God. If all of those things are true, then neither, neither death or life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I translate that into 2020 for you? Neither pandemics or elections or wars or social unrest, or fear-based media reporting, or poorly worded scaremongering social media posts can separate you from the love and hope that you have in Jesus Christ. My friends, Jesus did not just come to take you to heaven. He came to invite you into a collaboration to take every element of your life, every piece of it, and to invite you into collaborating with him in rewriting human history. It's not just heaven. I don't know why he's done that. You'll have to ask him on that because I don't understand that particular piece of it. But I can tell you from scripture, the invitation is there to adopt us as sons or daughters, to take our story and meld it into his and to make the chaos count. And to bring redemption all along the way. Mm. Maybe you have never accepted that God cares for you that way. Maybe this talk of adoption, you haven't understood it from that perspective of that you are a daughter and you are a son of the king himself. Maybe you need to accept that invitation for the first time, laying your life down at Jesus' feet. Maybe that's today. Maybe you are convicted just in this moment by our topic of adoption and the brokenness that sits in every life and your family needs to consider adoption. Tyler mentioned on the front end of this that, that we have a link online where you can do a child sponsorship eastview.church slash sponsorship. Maybe today's that day. Maybe today has a very different application for you. Maybe you've been buying into the voices of fear and there are many right now swirling around. And maybe you need to lean back in this idea that there's a larger story that goes way beyond this election, that our God is sovereign and that he's in control. Maybe today you just need to rest in the sacrifice of Christ and remember that he's brought you close as a son and as a daughter. 
Wherever you are, whoever you are, your Father loves you. And this love, if you choose it, it sweeps you into a story that's larger than you can possibly dream that gives your life hope and it gives your life meaning and it gives your life purpose because it isn't about you and your story. It's about him and it's about him, his story and it's about a God who can redeem all things. All things. All things. All right.